Today's podcast is being brought to you by Parametric. In a world where investors seek customized solutions, Parametric partners with financial advisors to create portfolios tailored to unique client goals and make passive investing personal. Parametric, custom to the core. More at customtothecore.com. Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Matthew Erskine. Matthew is a fourth-generation estate planning attorney and the managing partner of Erskine & Erskine and the Erskine Company LLC, a consulting firm. He focuses on strategic planning and legal services for business owners, professionals, individuals, families, collectors, and inheritors of unique assets. He also writes a very interesting column for Forbes, so check that out. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. Thank you for having me, David. So this week, we're going to revisit one of our most popular topics, the uh, purple one himself, Prince. Prince Rogers Nelson's death from a fentanyl overdose at age 57 on April 21st, 2016, notably without a will, led to one of the largest and most complex estate battles in Minnesota and, frankly, U.S. history. In addition to his legendary home Paisley Park and his liquid possessions and cash, there was also the question of royalty rights to his image and music, both his sprawling body of released work, as well as the contents of his personal vault, very literally a bank vault, supposedly stuffed with thousands of unreleased recordings made throughout his life. See, Prince wired his entire home for sound, so... He just was recording constantly. Now, nobody knew the password to the vault, not even Prince himself. He apparently forgot the password and simply began using a secondary vault a few years before his death. So the estate eventually had to bring in an actual safecracker to access the main vault's contents. Now, the value of Prince's estate, estimated initially at $100 million, but likely much higher, is still being hashed out in Car- Carver County Probate Court, and with the IRS, COVID has sort of delayed a lot of these proceedings a bit. Now, on Prince's death, a flurry of potential heirs came out of the woodwork, you know, from hucksters to ex-business associates to alleged love children. Ultimately, it's boiled down to six siblings, one full sibling, and five half-siblings, although this has taken so long that one of the five half-siblings actually passed away in February, so it's down to four. Now, the conflict over Prince's estate touches on so many different issues that it's simply impossible to address everything in one episode of this show. In the first episode we did on him, Megan Gorman and I simply used the whole mess as a context to talk about the basics of what an estate plan even is, and why it's important, just as sort of a jumping-in point for new listeners of the show. This time, Matthew and I are more concerned with what Prince's vault, the rights to its contents, and the content status as a collection in their own right represent. So Matthew, 
intellectual property is a topic that comes up all the time in these celebrity estate conflicts, but is to this point something I've largely avoided on the show this far. But what makes intellectual property a relevant consideration for more traditional non-celebrity clients? Well, intellectual property is uh, relevant because nowadays uh, even you and I broadcast on digital media so that there is a, a certain degree of immortality. Uh, intellectual property is essentially your uh, literary or artistic remains. And because everyone's putting out uh, YouTube broadcasts are generating memes, as well as uh, doing the more traditional of writing books or recording like Prince did, in a much, I wouldn't say haphazard, but perhaps more informal way than they've ever done before, uh, it makes it that your image or your product could easily be taken and used by somebody else if you don't protect it. Yeah, and, and uh, this idea of your image also just being so easily taken, you don't necessarily have to make these things yourself, right? It doesn't. You don't have to make your own meme and then say, oh, that's mine. It can just be you have pictures of you and your friends that you've posted on Facebook or various social media outlets, and that can just out there to be taken by someone who then maybe turns it into something that could eventually be monetized. And being aware of these things and how to protect them and how to ensure your rights in them can be very important. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, it is, so long as uh, there are somebody with the ability to uh, copy an image or a uh, sound off of the internet and change it so that they can you know, broadcast it, then this will be an issue. I guess the next question then is if we've established that you know, these are things you need to be aware of and, and, and to protect. How, how do you go about doing that? How do you go about getting started with, with planning around that sort of thing? Well, the first thing is to understand that you've got this digital asset, uh, this intellectual property, and to uh, make it so that people can get access to it. Uh, it's what's sometimes called having a digital executor. Uh, that is... Uh, having uh, some way of being able to actually get access to your social media accounts, to your photographs. Uh, and what people don't realize is that if you are in a situation, uh, I'll tell you a story about a client that I had several years ago, and she had a large collection of personal photographs in the uh, Apple iCloud. And she passed away, and there was a will, and there was a her husband was the personal representative of her estate, and he went to Apple and said, uh, "Would you please give me those pictures?" And Apple said, "No." And he said, "Yeah, but I'm personal representative." And they said, "We don't care. They're ours now." And we actually had to file a lawsuit to get the photographs that she had placed there. Whereas if we had had the password to be able to download those pictures, we could have downloaded them and then wiped out the account. So the first thing is make sure somebody can get to it after you are no longer able to do so. 
The second thing is to decide what do you want to do with this, these things. Do you want them to just be private? Or if there is the possibility of monetizing it, do you want to be able to have that happen? And who gets to do that in your estate? Right now, intellectual property is uh, a craft sort of like admiralty law. It's in, It's not something that someone who doesn't really know what they're doing can easily navigate. And one of the issues is how do you transfer intellectual property to your heirs? Uh, and that is not a straightforward manner. Yeah, I mean, to your first point about this idea of making sure someone has access, like it sounds so obvious and so, so silly, you almost roll your eyes at it if you're listening to this. But if you know, the listeners just take a step back and say, if you walked out the door and got hit by a bus, God forbid, would any people actually be able to get into your social media accounts? And how much stuff, you know, actual important stuff, do you have that only exists as sort of something, like, oh, I have it saved in my email, or oh, it's in a Facebook message. But, you, know, you never print it out because it's just there forever on the internet. You can always, it's just so much easier to search for it in your email or somewhere else. You know, so the value of those passwords and and how necessary it is to sort of and think about just how many you have nowadays too people can have 20 30 different passwords for various accounts managing that and making sure that that is that information is communicated and passed on is like an increasingly important aspect of estate planning that is often very overlooked there are uh services of one that i use uh, is called lastpass which essentially is a uh, means of storing uh, user ID and passwords in, in an encrypted manner, which sometimes is useful because then you only have to remember and transmit one username and password rather than 100,000. Uh, although I do have a client who's got a notebook that's sort of like the old New York City telephone book which he writes down every username and password every time he changes it. And uh, he says, oh, well, just look in the notebook. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that'll take a couple of days. But also, what's the point of having a password if all you do is have a, a book right next to your computer with all the passwords on it? <laughs> it sort of defeats the purpose. Well, it's also, you know, maybe you're carrying the book when you get run over by that proverbial truck. It's so it it is... There are services out there on having a digital legacy, and what you uh, also have to be aware of is that actually designating the digital personal representative in your estate may be different for Apple than it is for Google, than it is for you know some other service that you might be using, and uh, that is something you should be conscious of. Yeah, and as to your, your your second point about you know the story you told about Apple, um, it's important to note that all of those companies have their own rules for these things, and they're the ones who largely get to make these rules. That all that stuff that you just click through when you're signing up, all that you know, click wrap that oh yeah sure whatever let me get to my Apple, in there somewhere, often is the policy of what happens to an account after the account holder dies. And some places, it's really easy to get at it. But, you know, Google famously, I think they've since changed it. But in the past, you know, Google has been, like, it's been a no-fly zone completely for getting out a password if you haven't, like, gone through the correct 
previous steps before the person died to actually designate who will get it. You just cannot get it. So it's very important to stay on top of that stuff. You may have and likely have agreed to all sorts of different policies regarding directly addressing this without even realizing it. Yes. And one of the other things you should keep in mind is things like emails or images that you record to uh, the cloud, you're essentially giving them that digital data. You have the right to reclaim it, but it once you save it to the cloud, it is their possession. Uh, so when people come in and say, well, how can they do it? They're taking it from me. I said, no, they're not taking it from you. You gave it to them. So... We're going to touch on this digital aspect. The sort of this is the the all encompassing aspect of intellectual property that touches everyone a little bit. Yeah, but no more sort of traditional idea of intellectual property is oh I've I've written a book I've recorded a song. There are plenty of artists out there, plenty of authors, especially now. Sort of it's so easy to self publish on Amazon. These sorts of things. It's increasingly there are people who have books, pieces of art, anything sort of intellectual property that they just have. So. What are sort of the ramifications for, for those sorts of folks? For their- uh, it's that you can't tell what's going to be valuable in the future. I will, um, again, another story. I had a client who was a professor of mechanical drawing uh, at a local uh, university. And uh, he had written a book on mechanical drawing. And he got about $10.50 every quarter on the royalties and the sale of his book, because needless to say, they weren't doing mechanical drawing. Until one day, he opened up his mailbox and took out a check, and if I remember correctly, it was close to $5,000. And he called up the publisher and said, what's going on? It turned out that the there was a person who had designed a uh, CAD CAM program, which is computer-aided design and manufacturing, and on the user's manual, the first thing it said was, if you're going to use my program, buy Professor Smith's uh, book on mechanical drawing, because that's what I base a lot of my things on. So everybody who bought the program went out and bought his book. And now it became a very valuable asset, where before, he didn't even think about it. Yeah, and that's sort of like the Cinderella story, right? You have the thing that you just did out of labor of love or because you were the expert on it, but nobody cared about it, and then all of a sudden it unexpectedly become valuable. So that's the step one of that. But now what happens if you're Professor Smith's grandchild and you've since inherited that book? Well, you first off have to decide, are you his only heir? If you're not, then you own a fraction of the you know, intellectual property, not the whole thing. So one of the things that you might want to do in your estate is to say, I am giving all of my uh, literary remains, if it's a book, to this person to manage on behalf of my estate. So you have one person who's actually going to be able to manage it. Uh, I have also known people who have donated the copyrights to uh, charity. Um, the example of this is the Kurt Vile Foundation, where Kurt Vile, when he died, donated all of his copyrights to things like Three Penny Opera to a foundation. Uh, so 
The first question is, can you centralize the management of the intellectual property? The second thing is, and it doesn't require that you make out a business plan, but what would you like to have done with this? I mean, some people say, look, when I'm dead, I just want it to be um, only go to my family and never get published again. And there are some people who say, oh, no, I want you to promote it all over the world and my face will be on every computer for the next 20 years. Uh, so what do you want to do? And then, uh, so you define who was going to do it, what you want done, and then the question is, how are you going to do that? And so I think the one central axis of all these things that you just talked about is, is the need to communicate, right? Because first of all, to, to do, accomplish anything you just said, it has to be told to somebody and communicated. And then even just getting down to the very breast hacks, it needs to be communicated that this intellectual property exists and is valuable. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, and that it exists and that you are intentionally laying claim to it. Uh, in other words, if you, you no longer have to put the, you know, all rights reserved on the copyright, <laughs> but if you find somebody that's using your image, you actually have to tell them, no, that's my image, I want to control it. So you can't, as they say in the legal biz, you cannot rest upon your rights. So if something does come up and you're suddenly the subject of the meme of the day, uh, you need to actually try to take control of it. Yeah, I think that's a very important aspect here. And also depending on what type of intellectual property we're directly addressing, is sort of the need to defend your right in it, right? This is uh, why, especially in this world where sort of fan fiction and fan art are becoming much more popular things and you're seeing companies send out these cease and desists. It's not just, I mean, it's not just a company being a jerk. They legally have to defend their right to these, to these intellectual properties. Otherwise they will lose it. Well, in my opinion, probably 75% of the time, it's the companies being a jerk. <laughs> uh, Listen, you gotta make money. <laughs> well, no, it's because, you know, what they're doing is they are taking the most extreme position of what they control, mm -hmm. which is not correct. And what they're trying to do is expand it to the point where they can acquire rights over intellectual property that they don't actually own. Uh, and sometimes it's restrictions and sometimes it's being able to reproduce it. But um, that's my own grumpy opinion. I'm not sure that, you know, I would necessarily stand in front of the Supreme Court and argue that position. I don't think anyone on this show is really uh, have a future in front of the Supreme Court, not to, not to jinx anyone or to put any of us down. But I think we're, we're dealing with a different sort of a level of audience here. Well, I think that, you know, there's two types of lawyers. There are those lawyers who get you out of trouble. And then there are those lawyers who keep you out of trouble. Yeah, so hopefully, we're more in trying to kind of want to be uh, in the keep you out of trouble camp, right? Correct. So, moving on to a different aspect of Prince's estate, we sort of talked about the intellectual property, but also, you know, the, just the things in Paisley Park, the contents of this vault, these are collections in their own right, and, and those sort of have their own planning connotations as well. 
Yes, uh, and fundamentally, uh, people, when they have assets that are relatable, tangible assets, uh, digital assets, whatever, to themselves or to someone else, they become, for all intents and purposes, economically irrational about the way they treat it. Mm -hmm. uh, a classic example is when uh, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis died, they sold everything that was in her apartment in Manhattan, including the Tupperware you know, containers that were in the drawer in the kitchen, which sold at a premium because it was Jackie Onassis's Tupperware container. Of course. Uh, and so, you know, one of the, you know, the issues is that you may say that, you know, Prince's shoes are uh, a, a trademark of his uh, style, but how much are they actually worth? And that's a very difficult question to ask because uh, I have no idea how many shoes he had, but I suspect that he had a lot of them. And are you talking about selling one shoe? Are you selling half of them? Are you selling all of them? And that makes a difference on the value. And just like intellectual property, many times the management of an estate like that uh, requires putting somebody in control of what to do with the tangible assets. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when you have them in the form of, of a collection where there is sort of a, an ownership of it and you sort of feel almost like you have intellectual property and in how these things may be displayed or passed on. Yeah, a, a collection is in many ways the way that the collector, I mean, his collection would be, there would be some things that he collected, but then there are just some personal items that now are considered part of the collection because he owned them at his death. Yeah. It's but for a real collector... by association... Yeah, they've been, they've been, you know, if he had thrown out the Tupperware container, it would have had no value because he would have thrown it out. But now it does. But, you know, it, it is, you know, you have to understand that when you're talking about should uh, Paisley Park be preserved, should the contents be preserved, should it be cataloged, essentially the question is how much immortality does Prince get? Because if you're able to, you know, preserve it, it means it lasts forever. So many times people look at collections as my immortality. Uh, I will be able to have this collection and these items associated with my name forever. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really good way to put it. And I think that also sort of encompasses the sort of irrationality that you mentioned um, previously about how, you know, I'm a collector myself, so I, I completely agree with this, that there is a certain, a certain delusion of this is going to be me and this is worth so much to me because I've poured so much of myself into it and it's so representative of something specific about me. However, I just said me 30 times. That's very internal. And so it's very important when you have, you know, if you are a collector, it's very possible that even a regular person who's a very serious collector could be amongst the 1% of experts in that field in the entire world, just because they've devoted their life to it. And when they pass that on, they have to make sure they're passing it on to somebody who 
maybe there's nobody who has similar expertise, but somebody who at least appreciates the level that of expertise that's required to deal with this item. I, I agree with you in that people who are serious collectors, again, going back to Prince, uh, I suspect that as if he were to be compared with uh, someone from an auction house valuing the contents of his vault, he would have had a much better appreciation for the actual value of the contents of his vault than someone who was brought in who's supposedly an expert. Why? Because he's an expert in the stuff that he did, that he collected, that he enjoyed. And many times when I have a collector, uh, what I tell them is, you need to divide your collection into three parts. Good, better, and best. And you have to tell people that what is the best piece. In other words, if the house were on fire and you could only grab one thing, what would it be? Because what you don't want to be is in a situation where your heirs have no idea what it is that you've got and therefore do not treat it like it should be. Uh, I think that the analogy is uh, the Antiques Roadshow, mm-hmm. where you have somebody who comes up and they've got the $100,000, you know, first edition sci- autographed book, uh, you know, Mark Twain, Tom Sawyer, or something like that. And um, the, uh, um, you know, the end result is that that uh, it's put on the table in the yard sale and they sell it for five bucks. And then later at Antiques Radio, they say, oh, this is a marvelous find. Well, don't you feel like an idiot if you're the person who sold it at the yard sale for five dollars? Absolutely. There's, and, you know, I like the, your idea of this good, better, best, um, because you do want to give the highlights, right? Like it. If you want them to know what's actually valuable, but if you tell them everything in your attic is valuable, now like some, now you're kind of passing on a burden almost, right? Where if you're not rational about it, and that now they have to get every single piece of praise, and there's sort of there's a paralysis and a sort of a burden that goes with that, being like, oh my god, we don't know everything in here could be valuable. What can we do? That is very true, and I. I sometimes have to deal with the states where essentially the family throw up their hands and say, you take care of it. We can't deal with this anymore. And uh, it is it is a struggle because, uh, for instance, uh, I'm, you know, you're going through the thing and, and there are their grandfather's dog tags from the Second World War. You don't want to just throw them out. But the family has become so exhausted by going through this house that's crammed with this sort of stuff that they can't, they don't have the bandwidth to do it. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a question. Could we find somebody in the family who would just act as a custodian for a while? Should we be, you know, giving those dog tags to a museum, a local, you know, veterans, uh, you know, associated Second World War Museum? Uh, don't know. It's particular to each situation. Yeah, and I think this sort of uh, triage is important through all estate planning, if I'm being honest. Anyone who's 
help clean out a house when, when an older relative moves or, or sadly after uh, someone has passed has probably experienced the same thing. I know I, I last year during COVID, I, I was helping my mother sell our, our family home, my childhood home. And we spent four days in the basement going through photographs. And on the first day, we're looking at everyone. We're really thinking about it. Oh, my God. What could this, how many of these do we have? Oh, these people aren't around anymore. We better keep all these. By the fourth day, we were like pushing entire shelves just off into a trash bag because <laughs> we were just so, and I'm sure there were better photos in there and more important photos to us than what we had really considered on the first day. But after four days of it in this dark basement, you're just so tired of it that if we had just sort of ordered it a little better and triaged it a little better beforehand, we probably would have ended up with a much better sort of end result collection of photographs that, you know, for our family. But at a certain point, there's just a fatigue that sets in, and you're just like, you know what, just get this crap out of here. Yeah, that is absolutely, and um, I don't know if uh, it was uh, about six months ago, there was a person who was selling a, uh, it was a daguerreotype, and I think it was of, uh, I don't, it may have been of Abraham Lincoln, but Basically, what happened was that there was a person who was a photographer in the latter part of the 19th century in Upper New York State who had all of these plates in the attic of this house. And the family, you know, looked in the attic and said, oh, my God, and then shut the door and sold the house as is with the contents in the attic with it. And it turned out that this particular image may have been sojourner truth I'd, i've forgotten who it was that the picture was that particular picture was worth hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars because it was the first picture of this historical figure and all of a sudden the heirs say well wait a minute we should get that money and it's like sorry <laughs> you know <laughs> you sold it so sometimes it's like you know but what uh, the other thing I tell people is you should eat the elephant one bite at a time, which is, you know, it may have been better to just shovel everything into a couple of boxes or, or more and then, you know, take it home and, and put it through the scanner, uh, you know, uh, half an hour at a time. But it is a real challenge because you have no idea how much stuff you accumulate even in today's world, when people are not as attached to things as they used to be, anybody who's moved can tell you. This all, again, comes back to, like everything, frankly, that we ever talk about on this show in any given episode, it all comes back to communication. And the idea, that the, and it's a two, two-way street. It's the desire of the collector to share his passion and also just to share his desires about his legacy and and her legacy and, and what she intended necessarily for these items and what amongst them is actually important. And it also, you know, on the part of the rest of the family to recognize that this is something that's important to a person I love. It maybe is not particularly exciting to me in this moment, but this is useful knowledge for me to have, even if I never intend to collect these things myself, to at least A, we connect with my loved one on a certain level, and B, now I have a certain rudimentary level of knowledge about what's here. And sometimes what I've seen people do is uh, say, we can't, comp we can't keep this uh, collection of you know, signed first edition books together. It's just not possible for us to do it. 
But what we're going to do is we're going to create a catalog and we're going to put it online and we're going to say, this is Uncle Joey's collection of books. And to a certain degree, it's not as effective as ha holding the book in your hand and preserving the collection, but at least it preserves the intellectual concept of the collection. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, sometimes a, a very useful thing to do. Yeah, I think that catalog idea is almost like a fun mix of the two things we've just talked about, right? Sort of it's like a intellectual property in your collection in that there's value in how I've curated these items with based on my personal expertise. Well, and it also may actually enhance the value because if you've got the catalog, you can say, you know, the, the first edition, signed first edition, as seen in the catalog of Uncle Joey's that's, you know, you can go and look at here which all of a sudden makes it have provenance and that has value in some circles. Gets well, back to the Jackie, it gets back to the Jackie Onassis concept mm -hmm. of it's just a Tupperware con container, but it's Jackie Onassis Tupperware container. It's all about these connections and right? the more connections you can draw to something that people care about, the more valuable it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, Matthew, this is, I mean, one of collections and intellectual property, actually one of my very favorite topics, very personal to me. Um, but unfortunately, we are running out of time. I could talk about this stuff all day, if I'm being honest. I'd like to thank you for being just a really awesome guest. I appreciate your asking me to be on. And um, I have to admit that uh, I am the holder of a number of family, my family's collections. So I feel your pain on, <laughs> on uh, what to do with collections. So for all the listeners, we're all out of time. I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Today's podcast is being brought to you by Parametric. In a world where investors seek customized solutions, Parametric partners with financial advisors to create portfolios tailored to unique client goals and make passive investing personal. Parametric, custom to the core. More at customtothecore.com.